There's no ambiguity over whether the ACLU has lost that vision. There's such a deep irony in not taking cases contrary to our values because you're essentially saying, oh, if you want me to defend your free speech, well, first tell me what you said. Right, it's and, meaningless, you know, right? It's, like, there's free no speech point. means nothing if it means I'm only going to defend you if you agree with me, right? Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlatt. Well, Corey, what do we have today? Today's show, we'll take a look at the tanking markets, which don't have me stressed at all. I'm not panicking. Who's panicking? Not this guy. Then we'll ask, what the hell happened to the ACLU? We'll try to explain that organization's hard turn to the left. The House is letting congressional staffers unionize, again raising the question, how is this just now happening? And a judge is throwing out New York's gerrymandered maps, killing Ravi's dream of merging his hometown with Park Slope. But first things first, the only constant in politics is change. And I just came up with that line. But all that change comes with a lot of finger pointing and shoot from the hip analysis on which party has changed more. Either Democrats or Republicans have gone off the deep end, depending on who you ask. And maybe everybody's right to some extent. But this conversation needs a lot more nuance than what it's getting right now. So, Ravi, uh, let's just start off by getting your thoughts on what do you think about this whole phenomenon? You know, Elon Musk was tweeting basically things that were saying that the Democrats have gone further left and the Republicans have gone to the right. What do you think about that? Yeah, I always start with by thinking, I, I think focus on the group of people you spend the most time of and, and the group that you consider yourself a part of. And so for me, when this debate started, I thought first about progressives because mm -hmm. that's where I've spent most of my life. And, and I first just wanted to examine the claim, have progressives changed a lot over the past 10, 20, 30 years? And I think unquestionably, they have. And I, and I think like you can treat these things separately. Like every day isn't the ballot box, right? I'm yeah. not making a choice between Republicans and Democrats every day. And then the question is, are those good or bad changes? And as I go down the list, like Matthew Iglesias had a really good post analyzing this for, from both perspectives, Republicans yeah. in one post and Democrats in the other. Unquestionably, and I'm sure we'll get to some of the details here, Democrats have changed. Some of those changes I think are extremely welcome and are a sign of progress. And I think some of them are actually regressive changes within the Democratic Party. And some are just a matter of Democrats adding more and more stuff to their agenda, uh, which I think like, to me, I don't love because I, I don't see them carrying through on their existing promises. The Elon Musk tweet in question, which he basically tweeted a meme and it was not his meme. He stole this meme. Ricky, I'm, I think Colin you know, Wright. Yeah. Colin Wright, yeah. Twitter friend friends. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, stole, he stole this meme from Colin Wright, who then turned it into an NFT. So he's going to get some money from it. But um, <laughs> the meme, basically, for all of our podcast listeners, it has three people. And I think Elon Musk was saying that he himself was center left at a certain point, maybe 2008, which is where the start of this meme, which again, yeah, this, Elon Musk didn't create left. this meme, but he's saying this is him. Yeah. And then as you go to 2012, the, the guy in the middle goes closer to the center while the person on the left is going further to the left. The guy on the right just stays the same. And then as you get to the third year, which is 2021, you see the guy in the middle is now center right. And then the guy on the left is like way, way left. He's a woke progressive. A woke progressive. Progressive. A progressive. <laughs> yeah. um, he's a woke progressive and uh, progressive. And the guy on the right is still the same. So I think if Elon Musk... It's saying he's the guy in the middle and that the left has changed, which is a Bill Maher claim that yeah. keep hearing. the left has changed, not me. I mean, I kind of feel the same way. The problem I have with this mean is the fact that the right wing person is just like, like not changing at all. And yeah. I don't believe that's correct. I do feel that 
the right has gone to the extreme a good bit in the last 10 years. I would say that there are a lot of people that fall into this category of like, like Bill Maher, Barry Weiss, Andrew Sullivan, John McWhorter, Joe Rogan, who's a Bernie bro that somehow is like a figure of the right now that, you know, if you were in the center or like a classical liberal, you might feel more at home slightly on the right side of things. But that's not to say that the right hasn't also gotten weird. I just don't think, I think when relative to his context as someone who's historically been like slightly liberal, it's more relevant what the progressives are doing to him. Um, And also institutionally, I would argue that they probably have like more cultural power and sway than people on the right. Like not to say that there are not really strange people on the right too, but I think what we've seen in both political parties is the extremes getting elevated, a kind of weird opposite populism happening on both sides where the free market right is now kind of the populist right um, and more Trumpy. And then the left has kind of turned into this like progressive, more a liberal side where classical liberals now kind of feel homeless. And it's interesting when you actually break up the statistics, like, yes, we do have polarization and partisan people, but there's a growing body in the middle that are kind of disaffected. And I think that's what he's getting at. Although, you know, it's just a meme. I feel like people were like writing essays about this (laughs) and I don't know. Everyone's getting weird. And I think he's acknowledged that, too. Yep. He says he doesn't like the the left, but he also doesn't like the far right. Yes. I think it's also a question of not just how much different sides have changed, but how they've changed. Because yep. I think my, my analysis here is both political parties and ideologies have changed pretty significantly, but in wildly different ways. I think, you know, when Iglesias broke this down, there was mm-hmm. something really interesting about the Democrats that he showed, which he looked at the 2012 platform compared to the 2020 platform. And mm-hmm. he makes a note that platforms are... They're not these like, you know, be all end all documents, but they're reflective of the time period and what people believe. And what I found interesting was, you know, he showed major shifts on policy issues for sure, like lowering the tax rate turned into raise the tax rate, you know, opposing privatization of benefits and uh, change to increasing benefits. There was dramatic shifts, as you could imagine, on criminal justice policy. And this is all for the Democrats. This right? is all from the Democrats. But what I found really interesting was when he they, he cited a word analysis of the platforms, and this is this is what he had to say. He said no. Notably, the frequency of words per 1,000, so like every time a word showed up per every 1,000 words, um, everything that had to do with race saw a pretty significant increase in the platform, but economic concepts like taxes and jobs took up less space, and the platform expanded from 40 pages to 92 pages, and the new verbiage also raised the reading level of the platform from what computers say was a 13th. Uh, grade score. So basically somebody just started college to a 16th grade score. So essentially the parties become more elite in the way they talk about things. They've talked less about economics, more about race. That checks out to me. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you take a look at the issues that most conservatives are concerned about, they haven't changed that much in the last 30 years. With They've, one notable exception, I would say, which is elections. Well, elections, but even back in like 2010, the if you look or if you look at the 2008 Republican platform, they were talking about voter ID laws. They were talking about making sure elections were fair and free and things like that. Now, they weren't pushing back as much as like the things we've seen after 2020. Yeah, obviously, there has been a change on that. But I don't think, you know, when you look at conservative issues, whether it's what's going on at the border, being pro-life, being pro-Second Amendment, that this hasn't changed. They're, they're, they're going for, for the most part, the same issues. I think they're just going about it in a more radical way in the sense of things like January 6th and things like that. Uh, but when you look at the left, there are some significant changes. They were not talking about defunding the police 10 years ago. They were not talking about 
this, there's there's so much of this symbolic pandering I feel like they do to certain groups and, it, and it's, they're not even talking about actual like you know legislation or actual policy it's just like we stand with you because you're in that group so you have to stand with us but it's like what does it all mean but I think the question is like how do you weigh this symbolic right because I think Iglesias in his analysis does a really good job of showing actually the biggest shift happened from McCain to Romney yeah and that Romney's policies in many way mimic Trump's but then the question is when he says things like Mexicans are rapists and the way he talks about these issues does that matter to me it does just in the same way that democrats symbolically taking on issues do and, and to be clear like i said i think the democrats have moved pretty significantly now the the election stuff to me is different like the difference between talking about voter id laws and then making it the litmus test yeah. which seems to be what's happening now like here's a quote just from a couple of days ago this is steve bannon on um kathy barnett who's a candidate who's surging in pennsylvania right now and he goes the reason she has struck a chord is she never conceded her house race loss Pennsylvania is MAGA versus ultra MAGA. And you just compare that. It's not just a one-off. It's it's Trump, it's Vance and Mandel, it's Herschel Walker. This is becoming one of the, if not the most significant issues for a wide swath of the right. That to me is significant. So even if they've moved to the left on gay marriage, they've moved to the left on some other issues or stayed the same, this seems to be a notable change. Mm. And I would say that like Trump has moved the Republican Party as an institution more towards like a populist right wing. And like someone like AOC has moved the, the Democratic Party uh, more towards at least symbolically towards like a progressive Democratic Socialist sort of wing of the party, yeah. which is interesting because you see people who are still dedicated partisans seeing more than half of them or roughly half of them see the other side as like a literal threat to this country. Mm -hmm. But then there's a growing number of people that just don't have any interest in either side of right. the party politics, which I think ultimately could be a good thing because as extreme as they're getting right now, there's this strange kind of new coalition in the middle, which is what Elon Musk, I think, was getting at. Um, recently, both parties are losing approval ratings. Less than half of the public thinks that either party is honest or ethical. 43% of Republicans and 46% of Democrats say that their party is too extreme. And the majority of Americans say that neither party has, they have either a few or almost no good ideas. Wow. So, you know, people aren't happy about this. And I think that this meme, whether like you take issue with where the right wing person is, like it's just getting at the fact that there are people that feel like the the extremes have failed them and the the spectrum is kind of moving under their feet if they feel like they've been holding steady over the past few years and where i sympathize, sympathize with musk is the the obama yeah. democratic party which to me was the party that really motivated me to get involved in a different kind of way which was to me he had to emphasize if you look at obama and mccain at mm -hmm. that period of time but i was i was in democratic politics at the time Obama was emphasizing what we had in common, right? And he was, he was somebody who I think a lot of people saw themselves in him from different backgrounds to say, and I was in Iowa and in just nearly 100% white counties in Iowa that now probably are like super duper Trump. People saw themselves in him because he was using more universal language, mm -hmm. right? And that's where I think this platform change that Iglesias is talking about, that is a notable change from this inclusive rhetoric to let's emphasize actually what we have, uh, what, what our differences are instead of what we have in common. You know, I've talked about previously, if you go to the, at least I haven't done it in a, in a couple of weeks, but the last time I went to the DNC website, when they say our people, it's literally just a list of different groups. And I I did, a, the, the Biden White House sent me 
a contact information form the other day to update my contact information for whatever like list I'm on. There were four pages of identity groups that I had to click through, including overlapping groups and everything. And I'm like, why do you need to know that I'm Asian and then I'm South Asian? And then there was like 70, I, I felt like I was like, it was like a five minute exercise where it should have just been my freaking address, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But when we talk about extremism, because that's one thing that Musk said in, a, in another previous tweet was that, you know, he supported the Obama Democratic Party, or at least he supported Obama as an individual. But then now he's saying the Democratic Party has been hijacked by extremists. So it was a direct quote from Musk. So when we talk about extremism here, even though I do agree that the left has gone for, further to the left or farther to the left than the right has gone to the right. When we talk about extremism, are the proposals that the Democratic Party is talking about, are they, do they constitute extremism? Do they constitute threats yep. to people's lives. I don't really think so. But when you look at what some of the stuff the right is doing, whether it's overturning Roe v. Wade, whether it's the constant dismissal of LGBTQ issues, whether it's the fact that they're trying to you know, redistrict certain things where African-Americans have less of a power in their states. I think that the right, there are some general threats to certain groups that are coming from some of the rhetoric that they're doing. And I don't think, I think what the left is doing is like annoying and I don't agree with a lot of it, but I don't think it threatens society in the same way. Well, just to clarify, I'll put my position on the table is that I don't necessarily believe that the left has moved more to the left than the right has moved to the right. It, it, I think it all depends on what you're emphasizing. To me, the election stuff matters so much more to me than yeah, almost anything else. But it all depends on where you sit. Like, you know, like if your experience has to do more with like the racial politics of the left and you're somebody who, you know, is dealing with that on a daily basis and you're you're not as concerned as election as somebody like me who's been a political operative, maybe you're not as uh, focused on that. But to me, the election stuff has trumped everything else, no pun intended. Yeah, I think a conversation like this inevitably just becomes like the most basic whataboutism because of course there's just going to be extremes on either side and I think the the most important conversation is polarization and where that's leaving a lot of people and to Musk's point about uh supporting Obama in 2008 like that I was seven maybe eight when on his campaign trail so I wasn't politically conscious and it's so funny to be someone who's grown up in the age of polarization politically and then looking back at 2008 Obama stuff like I'm like wait that's that's Obama like I, I agreed with him and like I would have probably voted for him and that's that's shocking to me or th right. that realization was shocking to me in this context as somebody who kind of came of political age in that spot where Musk is talking about of like feeling like for some reason I have an allegiance to the right, even though there were a lot of common sense things that were just mainstays of the Democratic Party a couple years ago within my own lifetime that I do agree with and I feel like just isn't representative anymore. You know, Obama hasn't abandoned those politics either. I went to the Obama summit right after Trump got elected and, and Obama had left office and he opened the summit by saying, Real change comes through persuasion and openness to others. And if your starting point is you don't get me because you can't get me because you're not a woman. You can't get me because you're straight. You can't get me because you're black. You can't get me because you're white. If that's your initial starting point, then you will not grow and you certainly will not help the person next to you grow. That is not my common experience within, I've been in so many progressive gatherings over those four years. That is the opposite approach yeah. than, than a lot of rooms. That's actually the anti-affinity group approach that Obama was taking. He has not moved off of that. I just yeah. think that the party has moved away from him. Well, 
things change. Let's talk about something else that's changing and for the worse, the balance of my 401k. Stocks tumbled after yesterday's inflation numbers showed high prices are here to stay. CPI clocked in at 8.3%, surpassing analysts' expectations. And it's not just gas and food that are more expensive. Inflation has spread to nearly every sector of the economy. So guys, what's going on here? Should I hop on Robinhood and buy the dip or is the worst yet to come? Yeah, well, I'm not definitely not giving investment advice here. <laughs> uh, I think that, you know, everybody should be really careful. And, and I think in looking at the market right now, there are fundamentals and then there's like what they call the animal spirits, which is like the story being told often feeds a drop or an increase in the market. And I think both are going on right now. And, you know, we'd done a segment back in January where we uh, quoted famous uh, bear investor, uh, Jeremy Grantham, who said we're in the midst of what he called the super bubble, which, you know, means that it's a even more significant deviation from the norm than a regular bubble, but said that this super bubble is even more significant because it includes multiple asset classes. And he said it was equities, it was uh, commodities, and it was housing. And he actually said it was 3.5, which I won't get into. But you could throw crypto in there and say it's probably even four, especially given what we've seen over the past 24 hours, uh, never mind what's happened this year. And so basically, we've had all these inflated assets. And a lot of smart people like him argued that they didn't reflect the fundamentals. Now you're seeing those fundamentals course correct at a time where you're also dealing with massive inflation. We had inflation numbers yesterday where, yes, CPI went down in a way, but it wasn't as dramatic a drop as people were expecting yeah. it to be. And we'll, we'll parse through those numbers. But inflation continues to be a big problem while you're also having what a lot of people believe is a, you know, a reversion to the mean of the fundamentals of a lot of asset classes, which means that a lot of people are, things are getting more expensive and the their, their wealth is decreasing relative to what they thought it was. And the combination of those two things is rather scary. Yeah, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Like I spent the entire pandemic just looking at the stock market and being like, this isn't reflective mm -hmm. of what's actually happening. And I think that's the result of, of stimulus money that just got pumped into the economy that normally would have withered up during the pandemic and lockdowns of interest rates going down to almost zero. And so people are spending money that they normally wouldn't have access to. And then also money in the stock market going to stocks that were pandemic oriented almost like streaming services and tech companies and things that normally wouldn't have swelled to the extent that they did. And so now we're seeing all of this kind of crashing and burning inevitably um, as feds are raising interest rates. Like it's crazy the difference. And if you want to get a mortgage now this month versus last month, it's just mm -hmm. enormous. And I, th I mean, this just kind of felt like we were delaying the inevitable and now we're just like, oh, oops. Like it didn't really make sense that our entire country was suffering and the global economy was suffering, but somehow the stocks were just going up and up. Yeah. I bought stocks in oil during the pandemic, so I'm good now. But, <laughs> um, but you know, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, the stimulus checks and the money that we injected into the economy because there are, you know, Joe Biden, he did a speech about inflation, I think it was two days ago, and he, he blamed it on a lot of things. He blamed it on the war in Ukraine. He blamed it on, you know, just the pandemic, the pandemic yeah. and things like that. But he didn't talk about spending. And it seems like that might be one of the biggest culprits here. Tyler Goodspeed, CNBC, had a take I want to look at real quick on this. There's a lot of blame to go around. And Austin's right to note that in the euro area, food and energy have been a, have been a big deal in the past couple of months. But in terms of the, the underlying inflationary pressure, the, the real divergence between the United States and, and the euro area occurred in March 2021. 
They had been running even. If you look at a, a harmonized index of consumer price inflation, actually inflation in the United States was a little bit below the euro area through February 2021. It was in March 2021 that the divergence just exploded. And I think that's because we had a demand stimulus equal to about 10% of the U.S. economy. That American Rescue Plan, we just did one stimulus check too many. And that was with the biggest, too. The one under Biden was, was the biggest. So it seems like that really, really threw inflation into this just spiral. Yeah, and I think where we are right now is, you know, I think we're heading towards an iceberg of a recession. Goldman Sachs puts our chances of a recession at 38% in the next 24 months. Deutsche Bank, I think, is even more alarmist on this. And the numbers are, are if you parse through what's driving this, what I think uh, is concerning to a lot of people is that there's no one story, right? I, I don't think there's any one story of the causes of this. Like, obviously, like, I agree that government spending is at work, the pandemic's at work, the there were also historic forces. If you look at Grantham, he'd been writing about this for years. Like there were, there were inflated assets for many different reasons, both in this country and globally. But you know what's interesting is you have groceries, which we're, we're hearing a lot about food. Groceries actually are starting to slow down in inflation, but certain parts of groceries like dairy and grain are skyrocketing. Yeah. Travel is really skyrocketing. Airline fares increased eighteen point six percent in April, and they're up thirty three percent. Over the past year, gas prices were down over month over month, but are still up 43.6% over the past year. And what's, I think, particularly concerning is that it's not just about goods. It's not just about commodities, but it's also labor. And I think labor is going to be the biggest part of this conversation because the good news here is even the bad news, right? We had a 12th straight month of 400,000 plus job growth, which is great. But the thing is, like, as as the labor market gets tighter and tighter and tighter, people make more and more and more. It drives out the cost of services. And just one example of this is that HCA and Universal Health Services, two hospital corporations, were reported in the Wall Street Journal this weekend as trying to push for a 15% increase in services because of the nursing shortage. So, and, and that's just one example. Like you're going to see that from across the board. So I think that there's no one story here. And you may see certain things like if, you know, let's say, for example, we talked about China last week. Let's say China, you know, comes out of lockdown and solves some of their issues, that may decrease the cost of certain goods, yeah. but that's not gonna affect in any way the cost of services in this country, which still could go up. So, uh, you know, and the other part of the services thing is, the positive story would be that, you know, the cost of services go down, but the negative part of that story would be that unemployment would go up. So this is like, there's no neat story here and it's gonna be messy from for here, you know, moving into the future. 1929, people need to do some some research about what happened that year. Speaking of things that started in the 1920s, the ACLU isn't what it used to be. Unlike the apolitical organization it was founded to be, it's taken on a distinctly partisan tone, influencing both who it defends and how it defends them. The latest proof is in their apparent involvement in the Amber Heard Johnny Depp scandal, ghostwriting her op-ed in the Washington Post in return for a hefty donation. It's a strange move on his face. So Ricky, explain what exactly is going on here with ACLU. Yeah, so this latest revelation is just one of many accusations that the ACLU's lost its way, but this is just seems like regardless of what you feel about their political tilt, this just seems like an ethical question here. Um, in, in agreement, so Amber Heard agreed to give $3.5 million to the ACLU and in return they dubbed her a woman's rights ambassador which was kind of like a you know obviously there's a huge mess on both sides of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing and I'm not gonna like put put a stake in the ground and take a side on that but she had a lot of really bad 
PR issues. And so this was kind of a benefit to her. And then they also uh, ghost wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. Um, they pitched it directly to the Post, the um, ACLU. They helped to publish it during the Aquaman release, which she was in. So it would uh, enrich her as well. It'd be good publicity. Um, and ultimately, they only got about half of the money that was promised. She only paid 10% of it herself, which is crazy. Some of it apparently came from an Elon Musk advised fund when they were dating, which is also interesting. Hmm. Um, and there were a ton of internal concerns in the ACLU about whether this was a good thing. And now that op-ed is at the center of a $50 million defamation lawsuit uh, between her and Depp. So this is clearly a very questionable sort of scribe for hire um like even reputation salvager sort of deal that went down here so it's it's really bad it sounds like there's a, a big case of mission creep going on at the aclu right yeah. now you know it, it, at least from what we were able to gather the organizational budget has grown three times three uh, three x since 2016 but only four of its attorneys specialize in free speech issues yeah and the, uh, during that same period their staffing size doubled but it, they maintained the same amount of free speech oriented lawyers yeah it's like what the heck Shocking. are you doing right and lara Bazelon in the atlantic uh had a great article recently i think it was just this past week and this is what she had to say i don't look to the aclu to affirm my beliefs or those of my allies on the contrary i look to the ACLU to defend everyone, including my ideological enemies. Yeah. And the downside of this mission creep, it, like in and of itself, they shouldn't be involved in some of this stuff. And they've been donating to camp candidates. And, you know, they they were, they put a million dollars against Kavanaugh. They took a stance on student debt, the Kyle Rittenhouse case, things that you wouldn't think are a part of their mission. They also, um, um, one of their deputy directors explicitly endorsed banning a book that's controversial about transgender issues, which is just completely opposite the ACLU mission which if you go back into their history of the Skokie case in the 70s, I mean, it's a hundred year long history of defending all sorts of speech, even the most grotesque speech, because this is a civil liberties union and free speech requires everyone's free speech except for very minor cutouts to be protected. And in Skokie, they, one of their Jewish lawyers was defending the right of Nazis to protest in a majority Jewish uh, neighborhood with a lot of Holocaust survivors, which is just like the litmus test of the most extreme, like, do you truly believe in the First Amendment and all of its iterations? And then today we're seeing completely the opposite, which 2018 seemed to be kind of a turning point. Um, and that was when a leaked internal advisory from their head at the time told lawyers that they should be considering whether the speech that they're defending is aligned with the ACLU's values, which is just not how the First Amendment works at all, period. But if I'm not mistaken, that was in response to the backlash they got because they did originally defend uh, the Charlottesville uh, They didn't defend them. They helped them procure a petition to protest. Okay. Um, so they were they were facilitating free speech, which obviously devolved. And I'm not obviously I'm not defending Charlottesville, but mm -hmm. that's that's part of their history. That's yeah. part of what the ACLU does. I mean, the, historically, it's a left leaning organization body of people because it's classically liberal. But you have to be necessarily nonpartisan when you're defending free speech and defend being a First Amendment lawyer means that you defend stuff that you find grotesque. Well, and their former head, Ira Glasser, appeared on Bill Maher recently. Let's look at what he had to say. The ACLU has has become not totally. This is not a hundred to nothing, but they've become more of a political partisan, what they call progressive organization. Right. Now they organizations have the right to change. They can do that, but the problem is there isn't any other ACLU, 
And if there isn't somebody who's prepared to defend what you say and prepared to defend what the Nazis say and prepared to defend what people for abortion say and prepared to defend what people who are against abortion say, then the government gets to decide who can speak. And that's the most dangerous thing. Glauser is one of my personal heroes and he's a progressive himself. And I mean, I think he's just really like a figurehead of what the ACLU used to stand for. And he also says in this interview, you know, there's such a deep irony in not taking cases contrary to our values because you're essentially saying, oh, if you want me to defend your free speech, well, first tell me what you said. Right, it's and, meaningless, you know, right? Like free no speech point. means nothing if it means I'm only gonna defend you if you agree with me, right? Like as yeah. Rose Luxemburg said, like the free Freedom of speech means the freedom to think differently, right? And like, you know, all like all these classically liberal people, like John Stuart Mill were saying, like, if all of society believes one thing except for one person, it's even more important to protect the right of that one person to say what they're gonna say, even if it's insane, right? And that's what I believe. And and that's not that's not to say that you agree with the thing that one person says. No, I think there's this like, co-mingling, meaning like if you think that people, even with offensive speech, have a right to say it isn't the same to say that you agree with what they are saying. And yeah. those things are getting commingled right now. And I think there's no ambiguity over whether the ACLU has lost that vision. In a New York Times um, interview with Anthony Romero, who's their head, he was asked whether they believed that they needed to have like an entrance exam or investigation to whether somebody really, if they're going to work for the ACLU as a lawyer, whether they really believe in the First Amendment and civil liberties. And he said that he rejects the notion that you need to have any sort of entrance exam or bar in that respect in order to work at the ACLU. So, I mean, it's just, it's really unfortunate. And it's true that there's a huge void in our culture now if if free speech is only dependent on whether or not you align with the most major organization defending it. Right, you know, I think about, you know, the late Christopher Hitchens, he was giving a speech, I think it was in Canada before he died. And he was debating somebody on issues of free speech and taking the most radical position. Like, I think it was something that he can of defending Nazis. And he said, well, to whom do you award the right to decide which speech is harmful or who is the harmful speaker or to determine in advance what are the harmful consequences going to be that we know enough about in advance to prevent? To whom would you give this job? People are like, oh, like I, we think the government should have the ability to stop people from saying things, not thinking about the fact that the government sometimes has 50% of the people that you disagree with in it. So to me, I don't want to trust the government to make these decisions. And he actually asked the audience, he was like, did you hear any speaker to whom you would delegate the task of deciding for you what you could read? Who to whom you would give the job of deciding for you, relieve you of the responsibility of hearing what you might have to hear? Do you know anyone? Hands up. Do you know anyone to whom you'd give this job? Does anyone have a nominee? You mean there's no one in Canada good enough to decide what I can read? And to me, that's how I feel. It's like, it, like I don't want to trust anybody and trust anybody to decide for me what I'm going to read. And I feel like most people feel very similarly. Absolutely. And one more point that Glasser makes that's great is he's had a, a long record of of advocating against hate speech rules on college campuses. And back in the 80s and 90s, he's, he would tell students, like, if you were to put these rules in place in the 1960s, the people that would be um, discriminated against would be like a Malcolm X and not a David Duke because that was the cultural context there. And so it's really important to remind ourselves of how the culture can ebb and flow, how institutional power can ebb and flow. And you never want to place the power to censor in the wrong hands. Yep, it's a troubling shift we're seeing with ACLU. So let's move on to our next story. How staffers are getting the green light to unionize, which mainly gives me a reason to ask, 
how were they not already unionized? Well, Ravi, you've worked and you haven't worked on the House floor, I don't think, but you've worked in a lot of circles similar to what congressional staffers have to deal with. What do you think about the fact that they're just now unionizing? Yeah. And as background, I ran, started and ran an organization called Arena, which is one of the largest, if not the largest training organization for Democratic staffers, both in government and in campaigns that has ever existed. So I've personally led an organization that's placed people on tons of Democratic campaigns. And what I would say is Democratic campaigns, and this is probably true of all campaigns, but just the campaigns I interacted with, are often, not always, but often incredibly inhospitable places to work. And I think what's interesting is you know, I was somebody who worked in the charter sector, which means that I have a much different view of, of the role of unions in certain circumstances than a lot of Democrats do. But I found the hypocrisy startling that you have Democratic campaigns and then government offices like Hill offices that, you know, haven't been unionized by and large, while the same party is castigating the private sector and people like me who ran charters for not unionizing when they wouldn't uphold this themselves. And I think that's part of what colored this House vote. Like a lot of people are wondering why it took this long. This is a quote from Andy Levin, who's a Democrat from Michigan. He says, it's outrageous that our own staffers had to wait 26 years after collective bargaining rights were afforded to everybody else on the Capitol Hill. And if you read one quote after another from the people organizing this, they're basically saying like, yeah, you haven't been upholding your values. And so to me, this is like a very late to the game move by uh, Democratic House members. And I think it's puzzling. Yeah, it's also interesting that the framework to do this was already approved in 1995 as part of the Congressional Accountability Act, but then nothing ever came of it, which is kind of ironic. But ultimately, I think, you know, there's already a $45,000 minimum that Pelosi just put in place. So I'm not sure how much this is actually going to change salaries of staffers. But I do think it's an important question to talk about, especially if you're remaining consistent on any uh, nuances between public and private. You can't say it's almost like a not in my backyard thing of like, oh, everyone else needs to unionize, but not the people that work for me. So I definitely agree with the hypocrisy, but it'll be interesting to see how much it meaningfully changes things. Um, I think that's just something we'll have to wait and see. But there's definitely a problem in the fact that entry level staffing positions are so grotesquely underpaid historically that you kind of as a young person who wants to work in politics, you essentially need family money to sustain you in D.C., which is not fair at all. Yeah, I never worked as a congressional staffer, but I did work for a couple of years uh, as an organizer and eventually a project manager for a political consulting firm that did these canvassing operations in different cities. And I think in 2018, during the midterm elections, and I mean, you can speak to some of this too, Ravi, with your background with Arena. I worked 124 days without an off day. Yeah, I had Labor Day off after that, and then I worked another hundred something days until Election Day with with no no off days. Worked Sundays, Saturdays, no off days. I mean, the the I was making decent money, but the equivalency was I was making like maybe seven or eight dollars an hour because of how many hours I was working. It was insane. Yeah, this this happened to Bernie Sanders, who you know unionized most recently. He he got around to unionizing in the last presidential election, and his own staffers pushed back mid unionization, saying that even after this raise, we're still making less than Amazon were. Right, who Bernie has been really critical of, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then when they when they were uh, putting quotes out into the press, he personally criticized them for going to the press. He goes, "It does wow. it does bother me that people are going outside of the process and going to the media. That is really not acceptable. It's not what lab labor negotiations are about, and it's improper." This is the same man who's quoting people criticizing Amazon for their working conditions, and so to me, this is hypocrisy. I think the turning point here is the pandemic in January sixth. I think staffers had enough. Yeah. There was also this, this account called Dear White Staffers, which started as 
has an account on Instagram uh, cataloging the lack of diversity and um, the inequities on the Hill and then quickly turned into a place for people to review their bosses. Hmm. And so what I'm going to do here uh, for both of you is we're going to play a little game okay. and I'm going to read you a quote. And some of these quotes are from Amazon workers. Some of these quotes are from either Democratic campaigns or House offices. Most of these are either Democratic House offices or campaigns, and I'll, but I'll let you know when it's, we don't know what the party is, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you these, and you just tell me what you think, like who you think these are, okay? Okay. Ready? It was so toxic and abusive that I felt like the only way I could continue to function both in my professional and personal life was to seek therapy and counseling. I felt that leaving was the only choice. That's a Democratic campaign. Yeah. That's not only a Democratic office, that's Jayapal. Pramila Jayapal, who is one of the biggest Bernie progressives that's out there, she was accused of saying three sources recalled one instance in the office where Jayapal blamed a staffer for the lawmaker's personal waking because she did not have enough gym time on her schedule. And then her staff pushed back against that reporting, and this is their quote, the congresswoman is one of less than 100 women of color that ever, all capital, uh, served in Congress, and I can't even begin to imagine this disgustingly sexist rumor. Three staffers on, <laughs> three staffers. So they're saying it's about sexism, right? And there's a whole bunch of stuff in that story. I'm gonna read you another one. When I was hired, the term drinking from the fire hose was the way it was described. A better description would be something to the tune of drinking through the fire hose underwater while a group of people try to prevent you from, from coming up for air. That's a democratic campaign. Yeah, I guess. I that is agree. Amazon. Okay. I'm struggling financially to do my job. We've already had four people quit in the past four weeks because of financial struggles. We shouldn't have to get payday loans to sustain ourselves. Democratic campaign. Yeah. Bernie Sanders campaign. <laughs> I couldn't handle it. I'm a human being, not a robot. Amazon. Yeah. You guys are too good Amazon, at this. Right? <laughs> um, I lived in Section 8 housing all three years of working. Campaign. Amazon? I'm gonna say Amazon. That's the Dear White Staffers account. So that's somebody really? working on the hill. All right, wow. here's a here's a good one. People are thrown under the bus from the very top. There are short fuses and and it's an abusive environment. It's not a healthy environment. People are often mistreated. Democratic campaign. Yeah, I guess so. Kamala Harris's campaign. Oh, that doesn't uh, surprise me one bit. I lasted less than a year because I was so stressed that I developed ulcers, my hair fell out, and I broke out into hives. Mm. Amazon? I'm gonna say Amazon. That's Dear White Staffers. And one more. We need higher wages because I need to be able to feed myself. That's Amazon. I would hope it's Amazon. That's Bernie Sanders' campaign. Oh. So, uh, oh no. So to me, like this idea, like one could say you can cherry pick and paint a picture of any workplace and I would give them the benefit of the doubt if they weren't the people cherry picking people like Amazon. I remember there was this whole idea of who was peeing in a bottle working for Amazon, whatever. I'll tell you right now that I've been in cars. I've slept in cars working on campaigns before. I can't say I've, I've peed in a bottle before, but I'm certainly sure there are Democratic campaign staffers out there and any kind of campaign staffer out there who's done that. And to me, this is not to pick on a party. I've spent most of my life within the Democratic Party. But to me, like this is a unions for you, but not for me situation. And either... My big ask of them is either slow it down a little bit on asking other people to unionize or get your act together, treat your people better and unionize faster. One of those two has to happen or people aren't going to take you seriously. And I think people generally don't take them seriously. And when it comes to peeing in bottles on a campaign trail, I, don't, I haven't done that personally, but, you know, canvassing your outdoors, you're, you're knocking door to door. We did do that in bushes and we just saw it as a symbolic thing because we were working for the Democrats. So it was like, this is a bush where, you know, we're doing it to a bush, you know, Bush, George Bush. That's what we saw that. But, <laughs> but well, well, here's their response to this, by the way. This is the Harris campaign responding to some of these uh, these accusations. Uh, and this was Simone Sanders. We're not making rainbows and bunnies all day. What I hear is that people have hard jobs and I'm like, 
like, welcome to the club. We have created a culture where people, if there's anything anyone would like to raise, there are avenues for them to do so. Whoever has something they would like to raise, they should raise it directly. And generally speaking, I'm okay with this if you're not also the same people who are who are castigating other people for similar accounts, right? Mm -hmm. Once again, like just just a major issue asymmetry here in what they're doing and what they're saying. A lot of hypocrisy there. New York's congressional maps are officially dead. A judge ruled Tuesday to delay the state's primary races and give a neutral expert more time to draw new maps. Already thrown out on the basis of unconstitutional gerrymandering. Now, Ravi, are you okay? Because I know you had your heart set on like this park slope connection that you want to do with your hometown. I will never run for office. I never, <laughs> never was planning to, but I, you know, there was a uh, guy in, in Staten Island, um, Max Rose, who had this seat before, who I think would have benefited from, you know, he lost his reelection and he would have benefited because he comes from Park Slope, but he's been running in the, in the Staten Island seat. This would have all but assured him and a few other Democrats extra seats in Congress and the map that was rejected by the courts by some estimations would give a clear advantage to Democrats in 22 of New York's 26 congressional districts, which would net Democrats three seats by packing Republicans into fewer districts. And the judge rejected this. He said, this is Judge Kaplan. He says, let's be frank, this is a Hail Mary pass, the object of which is to take a long shot try at having the New York primaries conducted on district lines that the state says is unconstitutional. And then he cited his father, a Ukrainian refugee, basically saying like, look, I'm not gonna impinge upon the democratic process here. This happens as Florida's court also struck down maps that would have netted Republicans the equivalent of 71% of congressional districts in a in a state that went 51.2% for Trump, which obviously would be a big difference between the popular will. So the, the Florida stuff isn't done deal because that has to go to their Supreme Court. Yeah. But these are two welcome signs for those people mm -hmm. who believe in a nonpartisan gerrymandering process. Yeah, I find it very rich that we have to delay an entire election now for a neutral independent expert to draw maps, which feels like what should be happening in the first place. And it's not such a lofty proposal because California, Michigan, Idaho, Arizona, Colorado and Washington already have laws in place to essentially do that. And if we don't do that, we incentivize the most extreme voices because we're putting people in pockets where everyone agrees with each other. And we have 80% of a districts in our country considered safe, which has a 90% reelection rate. So essentially we're just like, no wonder Congress, congressional approvals at an all time low. And this, the lack of independent redistricting commissions to me is just mind blowing. And I can't believe that we have to actually stop elections still in order to allow someone that's neutral, which should yeah. be what's happening in the first place, actually get involved. And you mentioned California and you said Montana also has that? Or uh, no. Idaho. Idaho. Yeah. yeah. So Idaho's like mostly red. California's mostly blue. So that proves that you can still do these these independent maps and a party can still dominate in the state if that's the population yeah. that lives there. My Which worry is how it should be. It should be reflective of the population, not reflective of of pockets of extremes. Yeah. Yeah. My worry is that some of these independent redistricting processes are going to be rolled back and you're starting to see people agitating in certain states like Arizona to do that. And that's why I think national legislation is needed. And, you know, yeah. this, to the credit of Democratic members of the House have been trying to pass legislation to do this. Uh, and I think that that's the only way to take the incentives out of this because, like, people will argue that 
you know, I, I got this criticism from from fellow Democrats when I would advocate for independent redistricting. They say you're quote unquote unilaterally disarming. Like if you're yeah, a Democratic legislature true. and you're, you know, you get the picture on so. either end. I mean, yeah. you're you're just shooting yourself in the foot if you do the right thing in this right. case. So yeah. yeah, it's sad that that's not incentivized. You know, doing independent maps like that. Well, we want to thank you all for listening to the podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page, and also if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time.